I'm Denzel Mohammed, and this is Jobmakers. Jobmakers is a weekly podcast produced by Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston, and the Immigrant Learning Center, a not-for-profit that gives immigrants a voice. Every Thursday at noon, I talk with risk-takers, immigrants who create new jobs, products, and services in Massachusetts and across the United States, building on the entrepreneurial spirit that led them to America in the first place. When we return, we'll meet this week's inspiring entrepreneur. It takes a certain kind of person to leave everything they know behind and start anew in a foreign land. The kinds of qualities immigrants of all backgrounds bring to the U.S. are the qualities we ought to demand in our workforce. Perseverance, grit, ambition, adaptability. For Mahmoud Jaffrey, who came to the U.S. to study in the mid-1970s, those qualities enabled him to change course when he encountered what he calls the concrete ceiling in the corporate world for foreigners at the time. So. He built on a legacy started by his grandfather and began importing hand-knitted rugs from his native Pakistan, something that economically lifted up women who traditionally couldn't work outside the home. Today, he has three stores across Massachusetts, including the Back Bay, and flourished during the pandemic's renovation revolution. Mr. Jaffrey is very much of the mind that the United States is an extremely welcoming country but also believes more can be done to integrate immigrants, including undocumented immigrants in Massachusetts, for the benefit of everyone, if only for the politics of it all, as you'll hear about in this week's Jobmakers. Mama Jaffrey, thank you for joining us. Your business, Dover Rug and Home, manufactures and imports hand-knitted rugs, as well as provides interior design services and home furnishings. But this idea of weaving and designing and exporting beautiful rugs started generations ago with your family in Pakistan. Is that correct? Correct. My, my, my grandfather was a landowner, and uh, it was a, an interesting uh, philosophy that he had. Um, he also started the first women's uh, college of higher learning in Pakistan back in the late 1800s and uh, also suggested that to economically empower women in the rural areas or in an agricultural society is to have them weave rugs because women can, at, at that time, it was difficult for women to be employed outside of their home. Uh, and to some extent, it still is true so they could stay at home, uh, set up a loom, um, take care of the family, and and still not fight the cultural uh, taboos and norms, and be a major source of uh, uh, economics uh, to to the family, uh, because agriculture work back in the day was seasonal work, and there were times where men would just sit idle and there would there would be no work, whereas women could continue to be rugs uh, twelve months out of the year and be a consistent source of income. And it also became a source of foreign exchange. Uh, so what started as a sort of a quasi philanthropic initiative also turned into a, uh, a bonanza for, for the country and the foreign exchange. That's incredible. And you've grown from, from your garage and living room into 
three outlets, Burlington, Boston, uh, and Natick. Um, but bring us back to your, your life in Pakistan. What was that like? I uh, grew up in uh, the central part of Pakistan, which is sort of, uh, I was born in the southern part, which is Karachi, the largest uh, city uh, on the Indian Ocean. And then, uh, but I grew up in Lahore and, and in the northern part of uh, Islamabad and, and that area. And I come from a, a middle-class working family with, with the, uh, some of my uncles and, and uh, relatives were exporting uh, rugs. Uh, and I had a very normal uh, upbringing uh, and in a, in a somewhat of a conservative traditional uh, Muslim family, but very high emphasis on education. And uh, my father and my grandfather were always strong proponents of education, not just education in, in the sense of religious education, but modern technological and business education. And, and that's why we were encouraged to, for higher learning and higher education to go to either Europe or come to America. And that's how I ended up in, in, in US. <laughs> What was it like when you first moved here? It was, to be perfectly candid, it was a total shock. Uh, I had, you know, coming from Pakistan to a, a liberal, open California society in the early 70s was a cultural shock. I think it would be a cultural shock for many one, even coming from Alabama. But in my case, it was another country. And I was a young man. I was only 19, 20 years old. And, uh, but... You know, I, I, my focus was education, and uh, um, as a result, I was insulated from a, a lot of the pop culture, if you would. Uh, I had to stay focused on my education. And uh, so I frankly did not have that much time to have the pop culture infringe into my life or into my values. I'm sure eventually that eroded a little bit. <laughs> it did. <laughs> Uh, you had a sort of model coming from your grandparents and your parents when it came to the business. Uh, what was it like starting Dover Rug and Home? Well, it, it was quite a challenge uh, because um, <clears throat> after I finished my graduate school, I was in the financial world for, for a few years. And uh, I was with Prudential Bates and in the investment arena. Uh, it wasn't a glass ceiling back in the day. It was a real concrete ceiling that you could see, feel, and touch. And after spending a few years, um, I almost spent about uh, seven to 10 years in, in, in that business. And when it became evident that there's only so far and so much I can go, I was at the mercy of corporate culture and, and uh, everything that goes with that. I realized that in order for me to go any further, I would have to do something on my own, however small or little it may be. So that's why uh, my first business venture was in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, it started in the real estate uh, business. And then uh, I realized that, you know, what we sometimes you don't acknowledge and appreciate what you have. I realized that what we have is that if, if we can expand on that and grow that and bring that business into the retail end of things, um, there's a natural barrier to entree for the competitors simply because of our manufacturing capabilities that 
we are able to integrate vertically that our competitors can't, well, you know, they can, but uh, the probability of uh, uh, that is, is, is very low. So that was one reason that we, we, we thought that this would be a good model to have a stable, reliable supply and uh, capitalize on the growing and emerging U.S. market and having the ability to change and, and uh, stay with the times because our business has become a very fashion forward, design driven uh, industry. And if you don't have the ability to change quickly, like the rest of our uh, accessories and rest of the industry, such as furniture and fabrics, um, we would be left behind. And uh, today, a typical, typical consumer would make their rug decision based on so many other factors. So you almost have to be part of the conspiracy and collusion that, that uh, you, you are at the table. So we, we, we had that ability to do that. And you've experienced a lot of growth from your garage to a warehouse to now three locations. Uh, guide us through how that growth happened. Well, it was a very organic, uh, classic uh, self-financed growth. Um, we never went to an equity fund or, or uh, uh, investment banks or, or conventional banks uh, to do that. Um, there's, there's a natural aversion that immigrants have to debt uh, because they come from societies where in some cases, it's uh, socially and uh, culturally unacceptable to be under debt. Uh, you want to own everything free and clear so that you're able to say that, look, you know, I'm not obligated to anyone. This is mine and so on and so forth. So that's kind of how we did that. Instead of uh, taking our revenues and, and, and our sales and putting them into our lifestyle, uh, we maintained very humble uh, lifestyle and uh, uh, continue to reinvest in inventory and 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 in expansion and in advertising and in marketing and trying to get more and more of the market share. So it was just a frankly just old-fashioned, simple, debt-free kind of growth <laughs> that that we we did. You mentioned earlier about a, a glass ceiling that you said was was basically concrete. Uh, can you describe that a little bit for us? Help us understand that. You know, a lot of the immigrants, including myself, when we enter into the workforce, uh, we we enter into it with, you know, stars in our eyes and a prayer in our heart. And uh, we expect it to be a level playing field. And uh, and frankly, it's not. Uh, your, your color of your skin, the lineage, the legacy, all of these factors play into how convenient the road ahead is and how much of the way has been paved for you. Well, most immigrants don't have that luxury, especially the first generation Im immigrants. Maybe the second, third, they may because their ancestors or their parents or grandparents paved the way for them. But the first generations pretty much need to figure it out uh, on the fly. And, and, and when they're doing that, the society is not very accepting of, of them uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, some of them I mentioned all the way to the accent, to your religion and all of that. And uh, whether it's quality discrimination or, or uh, being marginalized, 
it's alive and well. And, and I'm not condemning U.S. I mean, I think it's all over the world. Uh, it's the fear of the unknown. It's, just, it's the fear of the immigrants. So when I say a, a concrete ceiling, at least we refer to uh, barriers to entry for immigrants or for women, for that matter, as a glass ceiling that, yes, uh, it's very subtle. Yes, you can rise up to a certain point and then you hit that glass ceiling. Well, back in the day, it wasn't even a glass. It was a concrete. That, that's what I say that was there. You could see it and, and not only see it, but you could see that it would be very difficult to penetrate. And, uh, and frankly, you know, there have been ethnicities in U.S., the wave of immigrants that have come through New York and other parts of the country where they started out as first-generation immigrants and figured it out very quickly that their uh, entry into the middle or the upper middle class would be either through education or uh, professions like medicine or, or law or, or in some cases uh, starting a business. So that's why I think there's a, there's a disproportionate amount of immigrants that start businesses. Immigrants are twice as likely to start a business in some parts of the country. They're three times as likely to start a business. Uh, immigrants believe- create jobs. Right. Right. And they're not afraid to hire immigrants also. You know, so, so, so sometimes uh, they, they hire a larger percentage of immigrants because they can relate to that story. Um, and I'm not saying that that's discriminating against uh, the status quo. But uh, that just, it's, it's a natural, normal uh, comfort zone that, that we deal with, we, we work with. Uh, so in that respect, they, they, they help the immigrant uh, community. It's something that some people struggle to understand. You know, why would a Vietnamese restaurant hire other Vietnamese immigrants? Um, <clears throat> but these are people you want to help uplift. And these are people you can relate to, as you say. Um, it's a very natural sort of thing to do. And this idea of um, the fear of the unknown, I think a lot of your philanthropic work um, would involve with sports, with education, and with cultural activities. Uh, you even offered rug-making classes to elementary school students. Um, the idea is not simply to uh, empower people, but to connect people, Right. Right. The idea of people learning other cultures, other, you know, where does this accent come from? You know, why do you look the way you do? And why do you practice this kind of religion? Uh, guide us through your idea behind uh, your philanthropic work. Well, you know, first of all, it's, it's something which, which was instilled in us early on in life. Uh, my grandfather and my father and my family has been very philanthropic throughout, you know, that's an important cause that they believe in. Um, and then second, uh, the very nature of my product is as such that when someone decides to buy an oriental rug, they have made a decision to open up a window of another culture into their home. And they have enough confidence to bring something which is foreign and appreciate it, live with it, and not be ashamed of it. Uh, so it almost became important for us to be not only just the brand ambassador of our product, 
but also be the, the, the cultural uh, and historical ambassadors of our tradition and, and our heritage, because so much of that plays into the actual designs and colors that you see in our rugs. So it, it made sense for, for, for us to educate and connect with our community. And frankly, there's no better uh, group to start with than young school age children, because they have an open, fertile mind. And when they uh, see um, a window of another tradition and another culture, and especially when they're learning about Middle East history, or in some cases, the travels of Marco Polo or the Silk Route, their teachers actually bring the children to one of our stores and we do this pro bono at, at no charge. And we connect with children uh, based on what they're learning and show them practical examples of what the Silk Route means and how the trade was done, because the rugs have been traded for centuries uh, along those lines. And, and the journey that these rugs took and the stories that came out of that, uh, love stories, war stories, you know, because it's, it's a form of art for that part of the world. Uh, because of the religious influence, they could not do statues or, or uh, paintings because that was almost uh, considered idol worshiping. And, uh, but drugs became the form of expression, uh, an art form to express. And then the raw materials was uh, indigenous and were readily available. And humans are creative. You know, they'll find a way to create something. They'll find a way to express themselves in form of art. So the oriental drugs became a form of expression from that part of the world. And we wanted to bring that message to the Western societies by connecting through the art element of it and, and how it has um, bound communities together for centuries. As a former member of uh, the Governor's Advisory Council on Immigrants and Refugees in Massachusetts, um, how do you feel Massachusetts has uh, fared when it comes to dealing with immigrant issues? Uh, we are well behind uh, certain other states in terms of uh, access to driver's license for undocumented immigrants or in-state tuition for undocumented immigrants. Um, do you think Massachusetts has done enough? Well, you know, back when I was member member of the council, uh, you may remember that uh, there was a policy paper which, which was published to, to help the governors uh, uh, and, and the legislature called the New American Agenda. Um, and, and it addressed all of these issues. And uh, for over two years, we worked on that uh, recommendation based on uh, public hearings, meetings, talking to the law enforcement agencies, talking to the legislature, talking to the stakeholders in, 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 in government and, and in business and in immigrant communities. But what came out loud and clear, even from the law enforcement side, is that, look, we need to give these people a driver's license. We need to give immigrants a driver's license. We need to know where they live. We need to know that they are, they are qualified to drive because frankly, you cannot stop them from driving. They have to earn a living. They're here and they're going to work and they'll, they will go to work. And putting them on the road and not allowing us to know who they are and where they live, 
it really doesn't serve uh, any purpose. And if you bring them into the fold, they, they become a lot more connected and a lot more productive and a contributing member of the community. And that goes across the board with, with so many other issues, institution, and especially the children that came here as underage children. It's a crime not, not to be able to afford them the same opportunities as been given to the other Americans. And if you look at the contributions that the immigrants make uh, to the society, once again, it's disproportionately higher. Uh, they become much better citizens once you give them a clear path to, to citizenship. And uh, they, they hold a stronger family. They Economically, they become much more viable and, and contributing members of the community. I want to bring it back to this moment of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a businessman, I, I, I read that uh, consumer spending on durables, which includes home and office furnishings, actually increased by 19% during the pandemic. How did the pandemic affect your business? I think we were very fortunate. Uh, this uh, pandemic forced people to work from home, spend more time at home, spend more time with their families. So it all of a sudden, once they were confined into their home, they were able to take inventory and stock of their living conditions and then situations. So a lot of the deferred decisions uh, were met saying, okay, I need to paint my room, I need to buy a rug, I, I, you know, so on and so forth. So fortunately, we were beneficiary of that. Secondly, is that the nature of our business as such that we can conduct business with following COVID protocol very easily. Uh, in, in a flooring business, there's never an opportunity that you're going to be closer than six feet to your clients or to your uh, uh, customers. Third, it's not a high traffic uh, business. And if we have three or four customers coming during the day, that's a busy day for us. So keeping all of that in mind and forth, uh, a lot of our, our, our work can be done in, in a customer's home. If they call us for, with, with samples or what their requirements are, they can send us the pictures. So their ability to shop at home also helped us uh, uh, tremendously. And then the, this whole renovation uh, revolution that took place, that people putting up additions and renovating new construction, um, flight back to the suburbs from the city. So all of those things, frankly, drove, drove our business. So, I, I, you know, but we had our challenges. I mean, our challenges in the business and pandemic was, was a supply chain. Um, that's really where we faced the challenges. Uh, and frankly, you're only as good as your weakest link. So all the way from manufacturing wasn't so bad, but ability to get the product to the marketplace, that was a challenge. You know, because of all the shutdowns and lockdowns and the airlines trimming their schedule and so on and so forth. You mentioned at the start of the interview that this was something that your grandparents, your grandfather did. Um, but I get the sense that what you've been able to do in the U.S., you at that time would not have been able to do in Pakistan. Uh, what, what is it about the U.S.? What are the factors that enable entrepreneurship like, like your story? 
you know, despite all, you know, all the complaints that people have against U.S., uh, I still think it's the best place on the on on the face of the earth. Um, and a good example of that is what Warren Buffett once said: that if you had left me in Bangladesh uh, 50 years ago, I would have been as impoverished as any other Bangladesh citizen. Um, but because I'm in U.S., because I I I live and work in a society that has a a pluralistic society. I can enforce my contracts because the the court system works. I have a stable banking system. Uh, It's a stable economic system. It's a system that I can rely and I can bank on. And that's that's for starters. Until and unless you have that in a country, you really don't even have a solid foundation to grow from. So that was one of the main reasons that we felt that for us to grow uh, out of where we are and to expand into uh, bigger markets. Reflecting on your own experience, what do you think about an immigrant um, makes them entrepreneurial? I think immigrants, I mean, it's it really starts right from the beginning. I mean, any immigrant who made the decision to leave their country their community, their family, their culture, their language, and their food. And, you know, and the list is very long. Uh, they are obviously driven people. They are also risk takers. So I think it's those qualities in immigrants that, that help them propel, that drive them to, to, to greater heights because... Uh, uh, once you make that decision, you have to understand that you you really don't have a safety net. Uh, you're you're leaving your safety net behind. So here you have to create your own safety net, and you so it's, it's it's you have to work twice as hard to make sure that you create a safety net for yourself and continue to propel and continue to grow. So I think it's that innate ability of immigrants that separates them from, you know, mainstream people. Mahmoud Jaffrey, thank you for that very sobering but truthful reminder about who these immigrants are, who people like you are, and the kind of qualities that you bring to the U.S. I thank you for coming to the U.S. and making an impact, not just as as a businessman, but as a philanthropist, as a human being. Um, thank you so much for joining us on JobMakers today. Thank you, Renzel. It was a pleasure. So happy that you joined us for this week's inspiring story of another immigrant entrepreneur. If you know someone we should talk to, email Denzel, that's D-E-N-Z-I-L, at jobmakerspodcast.org. And please leave us a review. I'm Denzel Mohammed. Join us next Thursday at noon for another Jobmakers podcast.